Hello, listeners. I'm Aaliyah with Below the Radar, a knowledge democracy podcast. Below the Radar is recorded on the territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. On this episode of Below the Radar, our host Amjo Hall is joined by Darren Byler, a sociocultural anthropologist and assistant professor at Simon Fraser University's School for International Studies. In this episode, Darren speaks about his latest book, Terror Capitalism, Uyghur Dispossession and Masculinity in a Chinese City. In the book, he argues that Chinese authorities and technologists have made Uyghurs the object of terror capitalism. We hope you enjoy the episode. Hello, welcome to Below the Radar. Delighted you could join us again this week. Uh, we're speaking to our special guest, Darren Byler, this week. He has a new book coming out in early 2022, Terror Capitalism, a Weaker Dispossession and Masculinity in a Chinese City. Uh, welcome, Darren. Well, thanks for having me. Yeah, Darren, maybe we can start with you uh, introducing yourself a little bit. Sure. Uh, I'm an anthropologist, um, and I teach now in the School for International Studies at Simon Fraser University. My research is focused in Northwest China uh, with a group of people called the Uyghurs, which is a Turkic Muslim group. Um, and I'm really trying to understand how a surveillance system was built and began to control their lives. So um, I've you know, focused a lot of my work in ethnography and interviewing Uyghurs, but I'm also trying to understand how systems of control change people's lives um, and how they build forms of political power and economic capital for uh, those that control such systems. First of all, how did uh, this research project uh, get get started for you? It was a long time ago. Uh, in 2003, I went to the this region for the first time uh, as an undergraduate student, not really understanding at all what I was looking at. Uh, and you know, at the time, I was a photographer, so I was taking pictures of landscapes. But I could see already then that the area where the Uyghurs live um, this immense space, the size of Alaska, was being transformed um, in search of natural resources. So the, the Chinese state had begun to build infrastructure, roads and pipelines into the region. Um, and they were also beginning to sort of change the, land, the, the urban landscape. Um, and so I could see that there's a lot of dynamism in the atmosphere, that a lot was changing. And I thought it would be an interesting thing to study not realizing that it would become so politically fraught that eventually it would result in hundreds of thousands of people being interned um, and that you know, the surveillance systems and policing would begin to really subsume everything. But, you know, I met many people and they became close friends of mine. Um, and as I you know, began a PhD in anthropology, um, they're the ones that taught me you know, Uyghur language, Uyghur culture, um, really started to sort of guide me through you know, what makes Uyghur life what it is. I think because I had built these relationships with people, I felt, you know, a lot of obligation to try to tell their story. Um, and that's, you know, what's sort of propelled me through the research. I'm wondering if we can maybe um, start with you defining the term uh, terror capitalism, the, the title of the book. Sure. Uh, so terror capitalism is my attempt to really understand what's happened in this space. It kind of emerges out of 2001 and the global war on terror, which is when terrorism was used as a, as a term, was used for the first time in China. 
Um, prior to this, Uyghurs were sometimes referred to as separatists, um, like Tibetans and sometimes Mongols, as people that want to have greater uh, autonomy within their own ancestral homelands. But after the War on Terror uh, began, the Chinese state began to talk about Uyghur protesters as terrorists. Uh, oftentimes, you know, the protests that they were carrying out were over land seizures, were in response to police brutality. They didn't really meet uh, standard international standards for what constitutes terrorism. But the state nevertheless began to use that term, and it sort of began to take on a life of its own. It began to uh, be conflated with uh, religious behavior in general, with um, you know, going to the mosque, fasting during Ramadan, which are quite normative forms of religious practice elsewhere in the world. Uh, now those things began to be seen as, as sort of pre-terrorism, as something that would lead to terrorism. And Islam itself uh, eventually was talked about as a, a kind of ideology of hate, um, really feeding on Islamophobia that was coming out of many other places around the world. And so, you know, and that's not to say that there wasn't actual you know, events carried out by Uyghurs that, that didn't target on people. They, they did happen. Um, it, and some of them do meet international standards of, of terrorism, but there were, you know, a handful of them really. And, you know, the, the people that carried out those crimes number in the several hundreds or maybe a thousand or more. Um, but the state has now begun to you know, assess the entire population as potentially terrorist. And so I'm, I'm looking at that discrepancy between the two. Terror capitalism is about how the state has begun to work in private-public partnerships with many technology companies across China uh, to conduct what they call is the People's War on Terror. And so they've poured you know, around $100 billion into uh, infrastructure, um, $10 billion or so into technology systems. Um, and so there's all the state capital sort of flooding northwest China building a kind of security industrial complex. But I, by using the term terror capitalism, I'm trying to understand that, you know, what does this do beyond sort of describing uh, the emergence of an industry and trying to think about how new forms of political subjectivity are created by using the term terrorist, um, how technology is being used to define the terrorist. Algorithms are, are, are beginning to assess People using, you know, fifty to seventy thousand different markers of religious behavior, then it, it becomes something about sorting a population, about deciding who's detainable, um, and once someone is potentially detainable, and or has been detained, they're placed on particular watch lists that mean that they can be subjected to certain forms of control. Um, they're not permitted to move through space. They can be assigned to work in factories, or they can be interned. Um, and, and what's happening here is data is being harvested, which is really lucrative for the technology companies. So that's really one form of capital. And then in addition, there's these workers that are under the sign of terrorism, um, are placed in factories um, that are securitized, that function as smart factories, you know, something in the, in, in the way that Amazon warehouses function as smart warehouses, where uh, behavior is monitored where uh, people are, are, are controlled through surveillance um, and in, in addition to the human surveillance. So I'm tr trying to understand this as a, a new frontier of capitalist accumulation that coincides with surveillance capitalism in general. You know, we're all kind of subsumed by surveillance capitalism everywhere in the world, um, but is also related to a kind of racial capitalism or racialized capitalism and thinking about 
the figure of the terrorist as the subject of a new sequence in racialization. Not to say that it's the same as you know black and white, um, like in in the U.S. context, but a kind of ethnic difference is being racialized based on the the religious practice or the um, supposed threat of the Muslim other. Um, and it, you know, it's really targeting particular groups of people in, within the Uyghur population. So, you know, the adult population and particularly men. So that's why I also focus on masculinity as a central dynamic in, in the terror capitalism that I'm examining um, in this context. In the digital enclosure that you talk about that takes its form uh, within terror capitalism that you define, what are some features of this digital enclosure that you could speak to? Sure. So, you know, the internet arrived fairly recently in this region. In 2010 is when 3G networks came. Um, Everyone bought a smartphone and they got on an, uh, an app called WeChat, which was available to them within China. Other apps like Twitter and Facebook were blocked in China. Um, and so for several years, people used it fairly uh, freely. Um, and some of that had to do with them using Uyghur language, which was sort of outside the censorship system in China. And so they were using the voice memo uh, application within WeChat to, to share messages um, about jobs, about politics, about religious practice. Um, there was religious teachers that built networks within WeChat. Um, so they didn't realize that they were leaving digital footprints as they did that. Um, but by 2014, 15, as the state uh, began what they called the People's War on Terror and, and began to f- use new breakthroughs and automated forms of surveillance, um, they began to track what people had done in the past. And so they, throughout the region, uh, hired 60,000 or so grid workers, which are people that are stationed at checkpoints. Um, and they started to scan people's phones using a, what they called counterterrorism swords that go through people's digital history. They also instituted a new ID system that was tagged to biometric material like facial scans and fingerprints, uh, iris scans, voice signatures. Um, and so they began to you know, track people's movement, assess them um, based on who who had done things in the past as that they determined were untrustworthy um, and remove you know, significant numbers of the population from regular life and sent them to a a series of camps that they had built by 2017. Uh, So that's sort of how it unfolded. It became this sort of flexible enclosure system that's sort of similar to border checkpoints, but that are every, you know, several hundred meters in, in Uyghur majority areas where certain people that are coded as trustworthy are permitted to pass and those that are untrustworthy um, are either detained or they're stopped from passing through those spaces. Um, so it's a, a kind of a digital apartheid system in some ways um, that is assures the flexible um, circulation of wanted people and, and objects, but uh, controls those that the state wants to control. How would you uh, differentiate this form of the use of uh, digital technologies separate from what's been uh, called the social credit system that's being used uh, in in a broader way in in China? Yeah, so across China, they're they're assessing populations. It's often being piloted at local levels. And they're doing a similar sort of categorization as who's trustworthy or not. Mostly what they're thinking about is who's trustworthy in terms of credit, in terms of economic credit, who can be loaned money, uh, who's a, a trustworthy business partner. And so for most people across China, 
this system is seen as something that's actually positive, as something that gives them some assurance in terms of whether or not they will be cheated out of whatever money that they're transacting in a, in a space. There is also a, a social control component to it. Like they're, they're trying to regulate behavior like jaywalking or littering and things like that. But most people see that as, um, you know, a kind of minor inconvenience. They don't anticipate that they'll be thrown into a camp or that they'll be rendered detainable. Um, like Uyghurs or Kazakhs or Hui people in the, in the Uyghur region. Those are all, those three are the main Muslim groups that have been targeted. Um, so it, if you're in the protected population, as the social credit system is something that is actually fairly similar to credit ratings in other contexts. You know, here in Canada, we also have credit ratings when it comes to who can get a loan or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm wondering, in, in terms of that uh, kind of you know, state-backed data surveillance of, of citizens in this type of racialized uh, sense as well, that what are the forms that resistance take uh, when you have this sort of totalizing model placed upon a, a minority within a nation state? Well, it, they become quite narrow. I mean, one of the things that a digital surveillance system can do when it's incorporating sort of the Internet of Things, which is your, your smartphone becomes a tracking device with a smart speaker in it and all of that. It means that, you know, people are interacting with the state um, kind of throughout all waking moments of their day. Um, people that I interviewed recently told me that, you know, they would leave their phones behind at times or they would go to locations where phones weren't really uh, possible, like a sauna. Um, and there they would feel like they have a free space to speak or they would go to a park, you know, those sorts of places. It's not as though the surveillance is perfect um, in terms of, and you know, perfect should be read sort of pejoratively <laughs> that it's, you know, omniscient. Um, but it is always there. And so it begins to change people's behavior. Uh, people just begin to self-regulate. You know, that's what Foucault was talking about when he talked about the panopticon, that it doesn't matter if the guard is in the watchtower or not. Um, you just start to change your behavior in case the guard is watching you or could be watching you. So, you know, that's what's happening here. And then on top of that is a sort of super panopticonism, which is that they're being assessed through patterned assessment in real time, um, which means that the guard isn't even necessary, that the computers are watching you. So the outside of this is really hard to see. One of the you know positive things, I guess, about it all being born digital is that it's easy to hack um, or to, to expose in some ways. It's easier, I suppose. Many of the internal police documents that I've been working with in this book um, were obtained by The Intercept, 52 gigabytes of internal police documents. And we have many other state documents that have come out as well that are often coming from within the state. Um, so it's people that want the world to know about what's happening um, that are, have something to lose if they are caught sharing this information, sharing it with us. And, and that speaks to the way that, you know, this is not uh, simply a Han versus Uyghur issue. It's also a state, a state power sort of apparatus that's enforcing this system. Um, so in answer to your question, the outside is small, but there is still some space. I'm wondering uh, if you could speak to, you know, other forms of settler colonialism, say uh, Israel vis-a-vis Palestine or India vis-a-vis Kashmir, 
the situation with uh, Uyghurs in China, what are some of the similarities and differences in the forms that surveillance uh, take in this context? Right. So the the settler colonialism in China, like colonialism in in Kashmir and in Palestine, is a relatively new one. Um, You know, it's something that emerges after you know, the primary wave of European settler colonialism that we is ongoing in, in Canada and in Australia and, and other places in the world. One difference from those older forms of colonialism is that it's, you know, emerging out of a kind of a moral wounding that was a part of that first colonialism. So I think in both India and China, um, being former colonies or semi-colonies of Western powers, um, is something that is sort of mobilizing um, popular movements and, and state leaders um, to exert some forms of, of power and saying, now it's our turn to be the colonizer. And not really, I think, reckoning with the the lessons of history in terms of you know, what colonialism does to the colonized. Um, so it's it's kind of motivated by this sense of lack that you know we were not colonizers in the past we were the victims and so now it's our turn. Um, so so that's a, a real difference um, because we have to account for the the way that you know Chinese people Han people are also racialized in relation to uh, Western society. But that's not to say that new forms of racialization don't emerge in those contexts, that the features of settler colonialism you know, don't uh, repeat in other places. When it comes to the actual security apparatus, um, they're quite similar. I would say that you know, China and Israel are probably doing, uh, are in the lead when it comes to the use of, of advanced forms of technology. Um, one difference is that you know in Palestine in the West Bank there is some forms of uh, autonomy within uh, Palestinian society, whereas for Uyghurs there really is no political sovereignty that's available to them. Uh, the state is everywhere. Um, the system of control, the digital surveillance systems, are have just been folded or, or or placed on top of you know all geographic locations, um, and so there's not as much of an outside perhaps. Um, the other thing is that in Palestine, much of the technology is is uh, extraterritorial, or it's coming from the United States. So you know, Palestinians are using Facebook and other apps um, that allow them, I think, to have a, a greater degree of free speech than you might see for Uyghurs. Um, when it comes to India and Kashmir, I think. Um, the Kashmir situation is unfolding very rapidly and they're beginning to use technology in similar ways to the way that it's been used uh, in China. I think that they're, they're in some ways perhaps modeling what they're doing on what China is doing. Although I don't know if they've said that directly. Some of the difference might be in the, in the way that the technology industry, when it comes to computer vision and biometric surveillance in China is perhaps a bit more advanced than it is uh, in India. And, and so, um, building these systems and, and putting them in place might take more time. Um, but, you know, these are small differences, really, although they have large impl- implications. Um, I think in general, we see a lot of commonality, that there's a lot of resonance between these forms of, of new colonialism. And you make a really interesting point in the book that settler colonialism uh, shouldn't just be looked at uh, as a kind of dominant Western colonial frame. There's certainly 
that aspect to its history, but that these newer forms that are um, happening in China, but also in in many other um, countries, and we see it, I, I suppose, in some newer forms of authoritarianism that are been emergent from Brazil to Turkey to to elsewhere. And wondering if you can speak to what are some of the the specific features of this form of settler colonialism as you try to define it. Right. Well, I mean, in some ways, it's the oldest forms of settler colonialism. So it's, you know, occupation, which is essential if you want to have a settler colony, you need to move settlers into the space that, you know, is the ancestral homelands, is the, the space of the colonized. Um, and then you begin a process of dispossession, which is, um, you know, ranges from material dispossession, taking their land, um, taking their labor, but also epistemic dispossession. So taking their language system away from them um, and the ways in which that they reproduce themselves um, by passing on their traditions to the next generation. So you begin to block all of those things. And the way you do that is through a relationship of domination, which is when you'd start to take over the institutions, um, you know, the court system, the school system, the the banking system. And you see all of those things happening in the Northwest uh, region of China with the Han people coming in the 90s um, and and then beginning to, to transform the geographic space and the society. So, you know, in many ways, what's happening there is is sort of stereotypically uh, settler colonialism. It's, it's, of course, an internal settler colony because the Chinese state has sovereignty over this space and has had that sovereignty for quite a long time. During the Maoist period, um, there was, you know, a good deal more autonomy uh, for Uyghurs. And some of that had to do with just them being like the demographic supermajority. Um, and so they were able to speak their own language and, and maintain control over their institutions. But there was also a sort of socialist multiculturalism uh, where they were you know, trying to you know, support the people in general um, while removing uh, those that were you know, following the sort of capitalist road. So it really wasn't until capitalism arrived that settler colonialism, as it is now in China, um, really emerged. And I think you'll find that that's, there's similar dynamics elsewhere uh, where there's emergent forms of settler colonialism, that colonialism and capitalism are sort of co-constructed, that land enclosure and, and proletarianization of populations, um, you know, which is part of, of capitalism really, is utilized at the frontier and, and is then expressed as a kind of colonialism. Um, you know, I haven't looked in, in specific ways in places like Turkey and, and uh, Brazil, but I think you would find similar dynamics in, in some spaces where, where the, the frontier of, of the economy is moving. Um, in the context of the weaker population uh, today, in terms of uh, the camps and other phenomenon that are, that are happening as a result of the, the actions of the Chinese state, uh, I, I know that that's not the kind of... Um, focus of your book per se, but it is a reality that's emerged um, after your period of, of research, or at least it was in motion perhaps at that time. I wonder if you can speak to uh, what you saw happening at the time of your research to what's happening now in terms of the direction things are going uh, related to the Uyghurs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're right. This this book, Terror Capitalism, was mostly drawing on on research I did in 2014 and 15, which is just as the people's war on terror was was beginning. Um, and some you know, community leaders were being detained in, in sort of informal detention centers or camps. 
Um, but much of that mass internment came later in 2017. I've actually written a, a second short, very short book with Columbia Global Reports called In the Camps, China's High-Tech Penal Colony, uh, which sort of brings the story up to date. And what I show in that book is that the surveillance system really began to sort the population and then remove significant numbers of people from, from it. Um, and you know that has had a devastating effect on the society. Many of the people I interviewed for the first book were detained uh, during that period. Um, and you know I talk about them anticipating their detention or knowing that it could happen to them um, and how they strove to protect themselves by building friendships with other Uyghurs who are in similar positions. So I, I talk about friendship networks um, among Uyghur male migrants and how they became sort of life and liver friends. Um, which meant that they, you know, helped each other find jobs. They protected each other from the police if they could, but mostly they gave each other sort of moral support by listening to each other's stories and sharing in pain. Uh, and so, you know, for me, that was an important learning experience, really, to understand what it means to be vulnerable, um, but also to to share pain with another, um, and think about how friendship really supports ways of, of being in the world and, and existing, even in the midst of, you know, extreme political pressure, uh, psychological pressure. So, you know, it's a lesson in survival, really. Yeah, it's, I'm currently working on a, a book with a friend of mine, a collaborator, Matt Hearn, on friendship and community. So I found that chapter to be quite um, interesting. And I'm wondering if you can talk about how you define friendship in that chapter. So. You know, friendship, my definition of it really comes out of um, my conversations with these Uyghur migrants and them explaining to me what friendship meant to them, which is, you know, it's a selective relationship, unlike your family. Um, And it's about sort of sharing a rhythm, um, which means that you, you know, have a daily practice of friendship. So it's something that has to be maintained. You know, one of the the main characters in that chapter, the main figure uh, who I call Ablakim, um, was very withdrawn. Um, he was suicidal, um, couldn't find a job. Uh, he had you know, been forced to quit a job due to ethno sort of racial dynamics in his school. And so he really turned to his friend, uh, who I call Batur, uh, for support. And, you know, he, Batur made him come out, you know, every day to share a meal with him. And, you know, it became a, a daily practice, really, of, of maintaining friendship. Um, and so it becomes a kind of obligation, but it, it comes out of feelings of intimacy, really, of shared attachment that, that's built up over time. You know, it's, it's like love, I suppose, but, you know, it's in this case was non-romantic. Um, these were you know, homosocial relations, but you know, they, these were heterosexual men. Um, but still a, a lot of intimacy when it comes to like physical contact and, and really being proximate to each other. Um, and so for me, it was, it was the most sort of intimate male friendship I've ever had, um, you know, coming from North America as a, you know, heteronormative white guy, um, and not really having, um, a daily practice of friendship. And so, you know, I learned that from these young men is that if you, if you want to practice uh, a sort of ethical care relations with others and build community, you need to really put the work in. It's something that is, is a daily struggle. 
Um, and, you know, for them, it was an anti-colonial friendship as well. It was really about how you survive police violence, um, how you navigate a hostile city, how you maintain some hope for the future, um, all of those sorts of things. Yeah. And, and I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit to how the effects of Chinese dispossession of Uyghurs affects the, the female Uyghur population. Sure. So, you know, in many ways, and, and this is also common in, in settler colonial context, um, the women become a sort of uh, an object um, of contestation. Um, so the state, you know, one of the things that they're saying that they're doing in Northwest China is they're saving Uyghur women from Uyghur men, you know, and that also comes out of the Islamophobic anti-Muslim male sort of rhetoric. And and we've seen this, you know, from the U.S. administration going to Afghanistan to save Afghan women from from Afghan men, um, you know, back in 2001. It's not it's not to say that there isn't patriarchy, there isn't sexual violence within Muslim societies. Of course, there is. But it's a, about not really asking what what Muslim women want um, and instead supposing that they want, you know, a sort of white feminist sort of ideal. And, you know, many Muslim women are feminists, uh, but they also, you know, have obligations to their families, to their communities, to their society. This is a a longer conversation, really. In general, what's happened to Uyghur women is uh, many of them have had the husbands or fathers in their families taken from them. um, And so they become more dependent, really, on the state. In some cases, they've become factory workers which means that the children, their children have been separated from them. In other cases, they're you know, staying at home, but because their husbands were taken or fathers were taken, they've been stigmatized. And so it's, um, it means that there's a lot of sexual or gendered pressure on them to find a new social role. And so in some cases, we see uh, Uyghur women whose husbands are gone finding new romantic partners, sometimes with um, the Han settlers who are moving in. There's, of course, a form of coercion that's there because the state is actively incentivizing um, and pressuring Uyghur women to marry Han men. Um, so there's a kind of assimilationist um, sort of element that, that is really focused on on the Uyghur women. In general, you know, they've been in disempowered positions historically and and continue to be in those positions. It's not as though Uyghur women don't want to work in factories, um, but they also, you know, care about their children um, and don't want to be separated from their society. So it's it's a very difficult position to be in. Darren, I wanted to um, ask you about, you know, uh, taking part in a very intense, immersive uh, scholarly project as your book is there certainly by, you know, taking on a politically sensitive topic over such a long period of time. Uh, how has this um, affected you in terms of your ability to travel to China or, you know, other forms of surveillance that might impact you or, or people that you might interview, how do you think that through uh, in terms of its um, effects? So first of all, how has it impacted you? But also, how do you think about ethically sharing these stories um, in the context of the broader surveillance uh, tactics of, of a nation state like China and you know similar situations elsewhere as well, where you see um, undue pressure being brought to bear on scholars, uh, human rights workers, civil society practitioners, uh, and so on. Mm-hmm. 
Well, I was last in the region in 2018. Um, and since then, it's, you know, it's when I finished my dissertation and started to turn this into a book. And since then, I've published a, a good number of articles and, and now books. And I'm very aware that the Chinese state knows who I am at this point um, and would very likely not allow me into the country, um, although they haven't said that. And oh, I still have a valid visa. Uh, and, you know, for me, that's okay. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a protected citizen in North America. And, you know, as someone who's in a sort of allied position with those that have been oppressed, that have been taken away, I feel like it's my duty and obligation to, to speak, um, to amplify the voices of, of those who have been disappeared. And so, you know, if there's a cost in doing that, I'm, I'm happy to bear it. It's actually quite minor compared to the costs of many others. You know, there is some implications about, you know, writing about something that's so sensitive. And one of the reasons why I really wanted to emphasize that this was part of a, a sort of colonial and capitalist dynamic um, is to show that, you know, this isn't unique to China. It's not as though, you know, because of, of China's authoritarian government style that, you know, this is a necessary outcome. I'm trying to also show that this comes out of the global war on terror. It comes out of a culture of technological development that really you know, doesn't put a lot of consideration into ethics. Um, and that's, you know, coming from the West and has now been taken up in China. So I want to show that this is a global phenomenon. And this is just, you know, one example of it, a, a perhaps extreme one. But I think many people don't see that. They think that, you know, because you're talking about something that's, you know, has major implications for how China is perceived in the world, um, you're therefore anti-China. And, you know, I'm, I'm, of course, not. One of the chapters in the book um, talks about what this looks like from the Han perspective and how, um, you know, this one Han artist tried to build a sort of a community of, of inter-ethnic solidarity, um, a kind of minor politics, a grassroots politics that would refuse, the, you know, colonial structures of the system. Um, and so I'm, my hope is that, you know, readers in China or, or in diaspora would be able to, to recognize that, that there is a role for them to play in decolonizing the system that's in place in Northwest China. And, you know, when they realize that they have some, a position of power in some way, although they're also quite controlled by the Chinese state and there's implications in, in them taking a strong stance, um, but there are, there is more latitude for them. I'm hoping that, that many more of them will also become accomplices in, in the Uyghur struggle for uh, greater self-determination, uh, for autonomy. Not that you know, Uyghurs need a, a new state of their own, a state solution to this. It's, it's more at a grassroots level, um, that there's forms of solidarity that can begin to, to produce forms of change that move towards human liberation. So that, that's the goal in, in the work. And, and I hope, you know, that over time, we'll move in those directions. Well, uh, having just uh, finished uh, reading it about a week ago, it's a wonderful, illuminating read and really made me think in new ways about forms of, of settler colonialism. I'm wondering, are there uh, particular theorists that you were particularly uh, been influenced by as you were writing the book or came across that you thought helped uh, clarify your own thinking in, in writing the book? Sure. Um, so, you know, I'm really indebted to 
you know, scholars of decolonization. Um, you know, of course, Franz Fanon, um, who's, you know, sort of at the center of, of decolonial theory. Um, but then, you know, thinking closer to home, Glenn Coulthard and, and his work was really, you know, taking up Fanon, um, but thinking about him from a settler colonial context in North America, that was, you know, really informative and, and useful for thinking about dispossession in a colonial context. Um, I'm also really indebted to feminist scholars of capitalism, you know, Marxist scholars who are thinking about social reproduction um, and what's at stake in the way that, you know, when when the economy, when the market begins to eat into uh, family life, into the basic forms of care that maintain a forward propulsion for a society, think about what the cost is when those things are taken away, when they're eaten into. Um, and so, you know, I've read a lot of anthropologists who are doing that kind of work um, and others. And, th and then, of course, I'm also thinking about surveillance capitalism or you know, scholars of technology and capital. Um, and, you know, one scholar, Lydia Rani, who does work in, in South Asia, thinking about um, the data janitors, which is you know, people that work to build AI systems that are often in South Asia and are contracted through Mechanical Turk, which is a, a platform that Amazon has. And they do, you know, they train algorithms how to do the work. That was really useful for me to think about how uh, low level laborers are put to task in, in building things. Um, and then the, the uh, book by um, Brian Jordan Jefferson, who's a scholar of policing in, in North America, technology and policing. He really shows how uh, police departments in Chicago and, and New York City have used automated forms of surveillance to extend the carceral system into space. And that was really useful for me to think about your know, sort of similarities and differences in the spaces that I was looking at. Um, you know, the main difference being that in China, um, many of those that are detained are then sent to work in these sort of smart factories. So it's a new laboring subject that's produced in a more intentional way than in the West, where um, often undocumented people are simply pushed into a gray economy. But, you know, those scholars that are thinking about racial capitalism and technology, thinking about feminist politics and resistance to, to global capitalism and decolonization, you know, I suppose those are the, the sort of main drivers that I'm trying to uh, intervene in and think with um, as I put together this book and, and will continue to sort of expand on some of the key sort of theoretical implications of it. Yeah, Darren, it's been wonderful to, to speak with you. Is there anything you'd like to add? Well, I just really want to drive home the point that um, there's, you know, that this book is is really attempting to critique um, global power and new forms of racialization um, that, that accompany the global war on terror. And that my, my hope is that readers will... Um, read it from that perspective rather than one that sort of builds on a, a, a new Cold War narrative, one where there's a bifurcation between the U.S. and China uh, with the U.S. being good or North America being good and, and China being bad. Um, it's not as though there aren't qualitative differences. Um, you know, there's differences of degree and you know, the scale of what's happening in Northwest China is, is really unprecedented. But the logics of these systems are in many, many places around the world. Um, and so I, I want people to think about that and how, you know, internationalist solidarity, where we, we join in thinking about from the position of the dispossessed, from the position of the colonized, 
joining our voices and pushing back against these systems, I think is is really where my heart is. And, and I hope readers will take that from the book. Darren, thank you so much for joining us on Below the Radar. Really illuminating to uh, speak about your book uh, with you, Terror Capitalism, Uyghur Dispossession and Masculinity in a Chinese City. It's uh, out with Duke University Press in January 2022. Uh, thank you so much for joining us, Darren. Thanks so much for having me. It's been an honor. Below the Radar is a Knowledge Democracy podcast created by SFU's Fan City Office of Community Engagement. Thank you for listening to this episode with Darren Byler. For more about his latest book, check out the show notes below. Don't forget to stay up to date with Below the Radar by listening to us online at sfu.ca slash voce or following us on our various social channels on Instagram and Twitter at SFU underscore VOCE or on Facebook at SFU VOCE. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time on Below the Radar.